The world keeps going round and around. So you always end up in the same place. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the, the still that I got you at London Film and Comic Con of Franco Nero. You said it was in Kioma, but I thought... No, it's not. It's Django. Yeah, that's great because it, the gun's wrong. Yeah. Well, okay. the, I mean, you've seen Django, right? I've not seen Django. Let's right. put that on the it's list. It's quite a plot point. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, let's yeah. put that on the list. That's Corbucci. Yes. Well, um, okay. So we're now talking about <laughs> spaghetti westerns. Well, no, this is important because... Uh, I basically have only ever seen the Leone Spaghetti Westerns. Yes. So I'm expanding my remit a bit here. And I'd heard the name Corbucci, and he's supposed to be the next best after Leone. But um, I'd also now had heard of this guy called, another Italian director called Enzo G. Castellari. I laugh every time because how many Enzo Castellaris are there that you have Five. to... That you have to have your middle initial. You've Five. looked this up. Seriously. We were trying to track him down. Yeah. And there's actually, we thought we'd found him uh, training a five-a-side team in Scotland. But that's a totally different Enzo Castellari. Uh, yeah. How many of them are film directors? <laughs> well, the other problem is, is he used to direct under several names. So he'd direct under Enzo Girolami. Um, so the, the G is just kind of useful. They all did it. Okay. Everyone was directing okay. under several different names. But the names. point is... This guy is a really good director. We discussed a movie called Street Law, yes. which was a cop movie. I'll call it a cop movie. It's actually a vigilante movie, but it's a modern crime drama uh, set in Naples, we think. So that's the only movie I'd seen by Castellari. I knew of his existence because he directed the original um, Inglorious Bastards. Tarantino yes. uh, went, then went on to make a movie with the same name. Oddly, not one of his best films. Are we going to argue about Tarantino now? No, no, no. I oh, mean, about uh, Castellari. Castellari. You'd think it would be quite a good film, but I mean, obviously Tarantino only used the title anyway, but it's actually not that good. Because he, right. since he's referencing it, you'd yeah. think it would be a masterpiece of some kind. Well, I didn't think much of Street Law. Hmm. And you, I think that led you to think that I wouldn't like Kioma. No, I had a feeling you would like Kioma. Because I think Kioma is something approaching a masterpiece. Yeah. And I think that Enzo Castellari is a really talented director like a very interesting director in a specific way because a German director called Max Ophels and I was aware of him because Stanley Kubrick would go on about what a great director he was and then eventually I saw some of his movies and the point is he's makes amazing use of the camera of moving the camera so just by moving the camera within a scene like from one character to another and from one angle to another he tells the story in yeah. the most beautiful visual way and this is what Castellari does hell he, yeah he is an absolute wizard of the camera and this movie really like from the very beginning you realize you're in for something extraordinary because what happens is basically um our hero okay Kioma is a weird title and Kioma is the guy's name and it's supposed to be an American Indian name I don't know if it is but uh, and he's yes. You, you look like you might be about to tell me something here. Kaoma does mean something, and I can't remember what it is. It, um... Now, 
in common with the the other Castellari movie that we've seen, Street Law, yeah. the star here is Franco Nero. Hell yeah. yeah. And he's, I can't tell you how good he is in this. He's, he seemed like a nice guy when I met him, when I was getting his autograph for you. But he's, he's so good. Now the thing is, I thought that he was, because it was sort of that period, I thought he was supposed to be some kind of hippie cowboy, right? Because he's got a bare <laughs> chest, he's got uh, beads, He's got sort of a hair band and he's got long hair. So I thought, hippie. But then I, at some point I finally clicked, he's supposed to be an, a Native American. He's supposed to be an Indian. And yeah. the reason you don't immediately, immediately, forgive me, register that visually is because he's got this huge flowing beard. And Native Americans do not have huge flowing beards. In fact, I, I looked this up online to find out why that is. But both because they're genetically predisposed disposed to have very little facial hair and what little facial hair culturally they tend to remove so you don't see an Indian with a beard so that's why when you see see this guy you don't think he's a Comanche or something like that I thought like, he's a really cool looking hippie also he's got these piercing pale blue eyes but that's because he's what they cruelly call a half-breed because yeah. his dad was white the actual title for this at the time that it went out with was Kioma the half-breed then it became Kioma the violent breed and then the, the version I loaned you just says Kioma on the front. Oh, okay, so it's gone so through... So it was known as Kioma, the half-breed of other titles. Yeah. Well, that, Which would have been more of a giveaway. It would be, yeah. Because I had to sort of piece this together slowly. But it begins... It's a, some ways a very strange movie. But I want to... Before we go too far, I want to say that I think this is one of the... This may be the best spaghetti western I've ever seen. It's certain, yes. <laughs> certainly up there. I mean, it must be in the top ten, however you drop that top ten. And do you not find it odd? Because I, I agree with you completely on this. I don't know why it's not better known. Yeah, it's magnificent. It's really well made. Um, so the thing about Franco Nero, this is going to sound very cruel and petty, but he's a better actor than Clint Eastwood, say. Yeah. Um, I mean, Clint Eastwood is a very compelling movie star, and he's terrific in those Leone movies. He's unbeatable. But he doesn't have the subtlety and depth of he's Franco very Nero. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Franco Nero has this wonderful, ironic, introspective, understated quality, and those amazing pale blue eyes. He's a terrific actor. This movie's beautifully shot, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it's, it's such a fluid camera all the way through. Oh no, yeah, the, the the camera, Castellari is some kind of genius. I mean, I do think it is Castellari, not just his cameraman, because there were some hints of this in Street Law, um, and and. Some of the long sequences are conceived to be done in such a way that that the camera's telling the story. Uh, it's not something that you could really do at script level or you could just come in and do like uh, on the improvise on the fly. This is deeply conceived by somebody who's a sort of genius of cinema. Well, it's interesting you say that because for the majority of filming, they didn't have a script. Ah. A lot of the, the story was improvised as they went. Yeah. So on day one of filming, they had no idea what the final day would be. So they would look at a location and think, what can we do with it? Not to that. I mean, they had a basic story. Yeah. But in terms of characters, motivations and anything else... But in terms of what they did with the camera, they probably just thought, what can we do here that's interesting? But yeah. it's, Castellari's it's... working on the fly for most of the film. But yeah. what works, it's not so much Castellari on its own, because I've, I've seen some bad Castellari. Yeah. And certainly his latest stuff, much like Dario Argento. Dario Argento's camera work mm. originally is beautiful. Maybe I'm not giving enough credit to his cameraman then. Well, no, no. What I think it is is this: that like most directors, you go off the boil, and the moment uh, straight to video stuff comes in in the eighties, it all goes downhill. But when they're still working with film and doing things, but let's properly, give the listeners a flavour of why this is so good. So at the very beginning, um, 
our hero Kaoma rides into this um, abandoned town mm. and he meets this spooky old woman who I would come in the course of the film to think that she was the personification of death. I notice in IMDb she's credited as the witch. I don't know who the hell this woman is, but he meets this woman and then we move into a flashback about when Kioma was a child, a, a little boy, and his all his tribe was wiped out. Yeah. And the way they do that is, basically, they just move the camera and the whole scene of the massacre has been just set up just in the, in the same shot yeah. and that the camera pans around and then it comes back to the old woman's face and does a close-up on her face and it's the most amazing way of integrating a flashback that I had seen up to date but in the course of this movie I saw several others uh, sequences that were like this it was astonishing is that I, I re-watched this obviously to do the podcast and this morning I watched a film called Ping Pong yeah. which does the same thing twice Exactly the same really? way. Do you um, think they, they were Castellari fans? Or? It seems unlikely, um, but it works. It, it's, I mean, it's, I've seen it in a few other films as well since. I can't think of anything earlier than Kioma that I've seen it. So, But you see, flashbacks nice usually are, as the name suggests, edits. Yeah. You cut to something else that was shot somewhere else. The way it's done in this movie is it's done in real time in the same location by threading physically interweaving the two, I'm moving my hands here to do illustrate this, which isn't very helpful, to, to weave together the, the, the action. So, for instance, we'll have Kioma standing there. Then his, his young self will run past him. Yeah. The little boy will run past him. And you'll set up the, the flashback in the same location where he is now. And it's a really interesting approach. I'm, I'm creates, knocked out by it. Yeah, it creates quite a staggered narrative in the early part of the film. You, it can be quite dis disorientating because for a while there, it's difficult to work out who's who, what's going on where, and everyone gets a flashback on their first introduction. So uh, Woody Strode as well, when he turns up, you get a flashback to him. And once you get used to it... I, I was I was often disoriented in this film, because for, for a start, it took me a while to work out why Kiyoma looked like a hippie. Yeah. It's because he's an Indian. Uh, and I thought, that, I worked out that he his mother had been murdered in this massacre, and that he was an orphan. And that he had been adopted by this white guy whose name is, is it Sherman. Sorry, I'm looking at my screen here. Shannon. But Shannon was his father. So he'd, he'd, uh, he'd had a kid with this Indian woman. Uh, and then when she and her tribe are wiped out, he luckily, Kaoma survives and he takes the boy home with him where he's got three other sons by another wife who's white, who's presumably died. I don't know if that's ever covered in the story. With regards to the witch, I have a theory behind this. Okay, let's go back to the witch, because the witch is very interesting. She's this old woman. She drags a cart around with her. And that's why I thought she was death. And the thing is, there's several sequences where Kim is about to get into bad trouble or he's about to start a gunfight or something, and she suddenly just appears in the background in beautifully orchestrated shots. Like, the, the camera will just pick her up. Like, there's none of this intercutting. Things are done for real, all in the same shot. And that... Her appearances are one of these things which are done so wonderfully well in this way. Like I say, they didn't know what they were making when they were making it. So in terms of interpretation, it's left open to debate. I'm of the opinion that he's in purgatory. I believe that she is the girl he saves. Oh. He has a line at the very beginning which says, the world keeps going around and around. And That's the first thing cool. she says is, you came back. Yeah. And, I, and it begins and ends in the same location. 
And I think he's just constantly... Well, look, normally I just humour you when you yeah. go on about stuff like this because you've got some wild theories. But this <laughs> remarkably holds water. So you mentioned the girl. Okay, so we've got to talk about this. Um, our hero rescues this woman called Lisa, Lisa Farrow, played by Olga Carlatos. She's really good. She's got this great face, very expressive face. But the interesting thing is, so he rescues this beautiful woman but here's what's different about it. She's heavily pregnant. Yeah. So so his motive in rescuing her isn't the usual one of, you know, romantic chivalry and or sexual interest. There's a, there's a suggestion of altruism in his rescue of her, which really lifts this whole movement. The fact that she's pregnant, it just adds a very different dimension and raises the stakes extraordinarily. But we will get to the ending. Uh well, let's jump to the ending. So the ending is a climactic gunfight. And it's, it's, this movie is some kind of masterpiece. It's extraordinary because what happens is she is there in this ghost town and this woman is giving birth. She's sort of screaming in agony while giving birth. While the final gunfight is taking place, we hear the sounds of her in childbirth. Yeah. And so we mentioned, I mentioned that there's this guy called Shannon who had these other sons well, these other three sons never took to their half-brother, Kaoma, and they shape up to be the final heavies in this movie. So Kaoma is in this ghost town shooting in this final deadly shootout with the three half-brothers, the Shannon brothers. Meanwhile, in the same in the same location, this woman's giving birth, crying out in pain as she gives birth while these guys kill each other. So you've got birth and death juxtaposed. <clears throat> I mean, that, that made for an extraordinary soundtrack. And then they do this amazing thing where they drop the sound out. I think they keep the sound of the woman giving birth, but they drop all the the sound of the gunshots and everything yeah. stops as though to say all this stuff is irrelevant and futile and doesn't count in the way that the birth does. It's an amazing and profound kind of cinematic moment, I thought. It is, and especially when you've had such a a pronounced soundtrack up to that point, the, the score, the song that follows all the way through the film. Well, let's talk for a moment about the music. See, I wasn't sure. This was the only sticking point I thought you might have because you know I love Guido and Maurizio D'Angelis. So do I, I. love their stuff. But their stuff is usually... Um, well, let's just say it's completely different from this. But what was very enlightening was when we did Street Law, I watched some of the extras on the... the uh, was it Blue... It was DVD. Uh, yeah, no, but it was. I was going to mention Blue Underground. Thank you. Yeah, because they had lots of interesting. Extras. It's a very old disc. <laughs> yeah, but it, but it was replete with good extras, and one of them was uh, an interview with Franco Nero. And what Matt was getting out there is that Guido and Maurizio D'Angelis usually do these incredible kind of pop funk type soundtracks, uh, quite dense and rich, and they're really good. But this is totally different. And what Franco Nero was saying um, was we always discussed the music before we did the movies and, and what we were kind of aiming for. And I think in one of the cop movies, he said, well, let's do something like Quincy Jones. But for this film, uh, for Kioma, he, he said, why don't you do Leonard Cohen? And uh, <laughs> when I told you that, because you hadn't watched the extras on your own disc, bad, bad, mad. Um, you said, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. And when I watched it, yeah. I mean, it's it's like a, it's pastiche Leonard Cohen in a good way. Like it's not, it's it's not um, laughably a pastiche. It's a very honorably a pastiche. They really, it's often by a female vocalist, but it's that kind of sparse, raw, tormented kind of lyrical. The vocals uh, are by Sybil and Guy. But the, the, is that a woman? 
Sybil uh, is, yeah. Guy yeah. isn't. Oh, um, okay. Sybil and Guy, two yeah, different people. But they used, that, that was a name, and I was just trying to look up, because I remember looking it up, and they're actually an English duo. Oh, I, they were a duo. Yeah, but Interesting. I cannot find their English name. <laughs> so I can see why you would think I wouldn't like this, because it doesn't have the orchestral richness or colour of a Morricone score or any of the other great, you know, the Piccioni or uh, Lavagnino or any of these other guys who did classic, bad, uh, I was going to say Bad Lamenti, but he's, he's, not a, he's not a composer of this period at all. Any of these guys who did these classic spaghetti westerns, it's not, it's totally different from that. It's got a Leonard Cohen kind of sound, yeah. but it suits the movie and I liked it. It also serves the plot because... The, well, the, they sing the plot at every point. Like, he's riding to kill them all now. It sounds like that. Well, <laughs> While the woman gives birth. They well, sing it better than that. The male voice it's is kinda... his voice. And oh, the female voice is the pregnant I girl's voice. I didn't realise that it was thought through in that way. That's so amazing. when she sings, it's, he's oh. coming to get me now, he's coming to get... So oh. it's almost like a Greek chorus. It works. Incre- if you go back and watch well, it again and I, listen I to the lyrics. I liked it already. In character. But, but yes. Which is that's... why I think when you get to that end sequence, they drop the song entirely and they don't have any music. It works so much better because that childbirth noise. I mean, yeah. If yeah. you had her thoughts and his thoughts, it wouldn't work. But Oh, this is quite, to use that word again, a profound movie. It's, mm. it's extraordinary. But the thing I was getting to, the reason we jumped to that sequence, that fatal duel uh, inter- intercut with the childbirth is that what happens at the very end is um, the woman dies during childbirth yeah. the child survives and the old woman is present the witch and she sort of expects and the audience expects or at least I expected Keoma to take the baby with him he just abandons the baby with the corpse of its mother <laughs> and admittedly this old crone there I mean okay uh, if he had taken the baby, he would have needed a wet nurse pretty damn quick. But so will the old crone. He just abandons the child pretty much in the dust. And with a line like he says something like, uh, if a child is born free, they will survive. I'm, yeah, I th- I'm hoping you'll correct me on that. Um, was it any... Uh, if you are born free, you'll be okay, is sort of the, the thrust of it. Yeah, I can't remember the exact line. But but, but it's a shitty line. I mean, it never has a, a, a man abandoned... It's not his child. Okay, that's true. But nonetheless, he abandons this baby with such um, cold-bloodedness that, that I that really, that I thought was a big flaw of the movie for me because I just thought it was, I, I've written, what a grim and unsatisfying ending. However, yes. if you look at it from my interpretation... The circular point of view, yeah. You came back means everything because he came back. Okay, so if the he old woman is the is the is the dead mother yeah what happened to the kid no no i mean the old woman's the kid i think the kid grows up to the old woman and then it goes around again and just keeps going around in circles and i think the whole point is that kim is trying to break that circle do they say that the baby was a girl? saving the mother sorry do they say the baby was a girl i Hmm? thought the baby was a boy I don't think they do say whether it's uh, a boy but, or a girl. But it, okay, but if it is Either a boy, boy, that blows your theory, which is a shame. Well, in theory, yeah, but I still think it works as a, a circular pattern that he's constantly going around in this circle. Are you sure? That the, I quite like my theory. <laughs> my, accident, my accidental <laughs> theory that, that the old woman was the, was the pregnant woman. Okay. No, because yeah. that's what I thought you were saying to it me. It does seem odd that the old woman doesn't help her during childbirth. Yeah. Yeah, she's there. Well, she's I think aware of it. She, but they she call her the witch. Involve. I thought she was death. I thought she was an onlooker. I thought the cart was to collect corpses. I I think witch is just a, a misinterpretation of old woman. 
from the Italian. Well, the Italian for which is Strega, so I'd be interested no. to know what she's credited as. In I the, think it may be Crone or something like that. <laughs> well, no, I some mean, enlightened word for yeah, a woman. Yeah. The, the kind of credit that anyone wants on their on their CV. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so but we're there are unsatisfactory things, which is why this isn't quite a masterpiece. But it, look, the photography is so great. Yeah. I don't just mean the fluidity of the camera movement which we've been talking about quite a lot it's that the color photography is lovely um i did feel that this was a very post peck and paul western so there's lots of slow motion violence this it was okay i thought that was a bit it got a bit sort of familiar and predictable but i think it has one of the best sinking bartenders of any film (laughs) yeah the bartender (laughs) sinks out of sight when the, the first sign of trouble but it's full of fabulous sequences and i can't I'm trying to convey how brilliant the photography is because the compositions are so like people are constantly framed by their surroundings in an incredible way. Castellari, I mean, I don't want to keep comparing him to Argento, but th- these are two directors who very rapidly stopped making good films. Yeah. Uh, or stopped. It's almost like they stopped um, worrying about their composition and what was on the screen. It was almost yeah. as though it was more about getting the film made than actually making the film look. Because good. I think it does. It does take. You have to be painstaking and patient to set up yeah. this stuff and you, what you're saying is they just gave up at a certain yeah, point yeah if you look at any of the Castellari stuff from the 80s and there's not much of it but it, it's you wouldn't believe it was Castellari um, but as you say in this there's some amazing shots that shot on the target range I love where the camera is behind the targets and each shot fired opens up the yes, target yes I was going to mention that and then behind each that. one it's perfectly framed is each character what Matt's framed. referring to is that, that sort of there's sort of a black screen and holes start to appear and as they shoot holes in the target, revealing um, Kaoma and his father on the, the target practice range. There's a similar thing where uh, Kaoma holds up his hand with four fingers upwards uh, and yes. he, he's talking about, what is he talking about how many bullets he's going to use yeah, or something? One, two. Yeah, and as he lowers each finger, it reveals the bad guy standing in the distance behind who, who he's about to shoot. It's genius. There's it's some really fabulous. good dialogue in there as well because there's a, a line... Um, Allow. Kiyama has in that yep. same sequence, I think it is, where he says, um, you shoot real good at the dead. <laughs> but I wanted to, to cite this thing from Woody. Okay, Woody Strode is this great African-American <laughs> great African American actor, particularly strong on Westerns. He was in The Professionals, Richard Brooks' The Professionals. He's very good in that. That's probably the best role he had, maybe. But he was briefly in Once Upon a Time in the West. Anyway, uh, terrific American actor, specialised in Westerns. Very distinctive look because he's got a shaved, bald head. But in this movie, so what happens when Kaoma, as a little boy, is taken back to the Shannon Ranch? Uh, at the ranch, there's no woman. The, the mother is dead. And this, this, this sort of um, the helper or, or um, factotum is Woody Strode. But in fact, he's the slave. He's, he's actually a slave at that point, isn't he? Yeah. And... But in the course of the movie, th- th- this was years ago, since that time, since Kiyoma's childhood, the Civil War has taken place. And Woody Strode has achieved his freedom. And th- there's some very cynical dialogue about the Civil War between Kiyoma and his father. And um, and it's amazing. And I, I, it's, I think it's quite grimly true because what Kiyoma's father said is that um, we, slaughtered all, we slaughtered all the Indians and then we freed the slaves so we could feel better about ourselves. <laughs> and then he says, um, now we feel good, we can go back to finish off the Indians. It's incredible. But but sort of in line with that, they go, when Kaoma finds 
Woody Strode, he's returned home after years and years away. He finds him as a drunk in the street. And he says to Woody Strode, you got your freedom. And Woody Strode says, I found out what it's worth. That's why I drink. These, this is really good dialogue. Yeah. And I don't know if you if it's covered in that Franco Nero interview. I, I don't think I've ever watched that interview, but most of the dialogue on this film was Nero. So on set, he was basically yeah, saying, we should do this instead, we should do that. Instead. Well, he had a heavy hand in the script. He's a, a genius. I, don't know, I shouldn't throw the word genius around, but he's a... He's not only a, on the basis of that. He's not only a terrific star. He's a very inventive uh, creator of script material. I think what it is is that they are the perfect storm. He, uh, Franco Nero, Enzo Castellari, Guido Mitrioli, Diana Jealous. If you get the three of them together, they do really good things. Well, I think obviously that the cinematographer must be important. So I'm just saying. Oh, the art direction is by Carlo Simi, who worked with uh, Leone. Mm. all the time um, set direction by Carlo Gentili oh production design by Carlo Simi this begins to explain why this film looks so great uh, <laughs> cinematographer is called Ayachi Paroline which I'd, I'd, I've never heard of this guy no it's not a name that's familiar to me either but he, he had a wonderful team but when you you were going on about the added value you get from Franco Nero, of course, he also seems to do all his own stunts. Yes, yet again, he goes through hell. In this yeah, film. he jumps on horses. I was a bit worried about the way the horses were treated in this, i got to say. There is a moment in there where it looks pretty grim. However, I've seen a lot of horses that are, you know, trained for stunts or used well, for stunts. Well, I, I think at this point... Are good at dropping up demand. At this point in the 70s, there probably was some, you know... Um, some laws to prevent terrible things being done to horses. Not like when they were making the silent Ben-Hur and they were just like, they killed literally hundreds of horses. That was in Rome too. Anyway, let's Look, I was watching a Harold Lloyd film the other day where a, a horse got run over by a car and there's no way that horse wasn't run over by a car. That it was, was pretty grim. And that was supposed to be funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, genuinely actually was quite funny. But <laughs> Oh, Jesus. Anyway, um, so Franco Nero's jumping on horses. He's doing yeah. all these pretty impressive stunts. But so Franco, more power to Franco Nero. Well, I've got to say, you can see now why I really wanted to meet him, and I'm so annoyed that I couldn't get up there that day. You should have. I mean, I think he said that. I said, "Oh, my friend really wishes he could be." Here. And he said somehow, "Ah, he's such a big fan, he should be here." <laughs> but he was a really nice guy, and I think I shook his hand on your behalf. And now that I know who he is, <laughs> I'm funny. so pleased I did that. I think he's a, a very important figure. I'd never have thought he'd gone to Comic Con. And yeah, there's some guys that you just do you wouldn't expect to see there. And I can't. Did he have a much of a queue there? Well, I I had to wait a little bit. There's a few people ahead of me. But Imagine most people only know him from Die Hard. Oh my God, is he in Die Hard? He's in Die Hard too. He's okay. the the uh, foreign president who's uh, kidnapped on the plane. Look, he's so good, and it seemed like such a nice chap on a very brief acquaintance. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so more power to Franco Nero. So this, um, there are problems with this film. There's the ending where he just abandons the baby and gallops off. Like, let's just leave the child here with his old crone. Um, I think you can excuse that because there's never really a clear motivation for Fiona anyway. You don't really know why he's doing much of yeah, the stuff Yeah, but it's so cruel. Just to, uh, anyway, there's that. The other thing is, there's this really strange plot point. We're in this western town, which is called Skidoo, an amusing name for a town. But it's got that classic western thing that there's an evil businessman who dominates the town and he's responsible for all the evil that goes on and he has an evil gang to enforce his evil ways but part of his evil I think he's got some kind of he's doing something 
that is poisoning the water in the wells. This is all just told in dialogue. And people who drink the water become diseased and then they are become infectious. Like So it's not that the water is poisoned because they, they get a disease that, that is infectious. Now, you can get cholera from water, but this isn't cholera. It's basically the plague. Yeah. They call it the plague. So none of this holds water to make a bun. I mean, none of it, none of it makes sense. But the, basically, the bad, the evil industrialist bad guy has somehow contaminated the water with something that is infectious and is like the plague, which is all, as far as I, I know, uh, nonsense. <laughs> so that's not great. It's not a great part of the plot. It's that plague element that adds to the purgatory theory there. Well, it kind of does, because what happens to people who've got the plague is that they're shipped out of town to an old uh, disused mine where they're sort of kept in a concentration camp, basically. Yeah, more importantly, all their goods are seized and their homes are seized. Oh, OK. Well, I didn't um, really get that. But some that... people get sent there without actually being ill. They get ill when they get there. So the idea is, is that he has the power to seize people and say they've got the plague and they just dump them with the others. And by that time, they've got the plague because they've sat in there for a day. Yeah, OK. And the point about the woman, the, the pregnant woman, is she's her husband's got it, so she's going to the concentration camp with yeah. him, but she hasn't got it By yet. proxy. <laughs> yeah. So all of that is kind of confusing and not logical and not really rooted in reality, so that kind of irked me. And it seems odd that... Um, and they said Django. It seems odd that Kioma knows that she doesn't have the plague. Well, I, you know, is he even bothered about the plague? I wasn't bothered about the plague because I didn't believe it for a minute. Mm. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe he knows that it's all the But same. he's not interested in the woman for any of the usual reasons one no. would be he's just kind of trying to protect her which is, makes it all the more stupid that he just abandons the baby at the end anyway so we've dwelled for a moment on the deficiencies of this film but apart from that it's staggeringly good yeah. another thing that makes these shootouts work really well in this film is that unlike a lot of westerns and this may be budgetary but the town is not big it's very cramped it may not be big but boy does it look good it's got really yeah. interesting stuff in it because it's got various bits of kind of machinery uh, and also in one of the the uh, shootouts there's all this drifting uh dif drifting dust like visually this movie is always really interesting which is makes sense when i know that it, carlo simi was the production designer so it's visually always terrific yeah um yeah the, it, because you've got that cramped feeling for every fight sequence whereas you normally in a western you've got Two people either end of a very long street shooting at each other for a couple of minutes. Yes. It's, in this, very little of that happens. It almost all happens inside buildings. So yeah. as much as There's actually a bit each other, where he's being chased by a guy on a horse inside. Through a building. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, that, and that's kind of incredible. And because Kaoma is theoretically a Native American, he uh, doesn't just use a gun. He, he's very effective at throwing a knife. At one point, he throws a knife from about three miles away yeah. <laughs> off the top of a cliff. I believe Franco Nero can do that. I believed all the other knife throwing, which is really kind of cool, but not that one, not the off the top of the cliff one, which is actually at that concentration camp we were talking about earlier. But yeah, and, and there's things like, there's this kind of um, what big wide gutter in the street, which he gets dragged through, if you it's, remember. Oh, well, again, yet again, we see Frank O'Neill being dragged around in muddy yeah, yeah. puddles. And yeah. you think, what has and the, Castellari got the, the, against the, Yeah, but they're fighting in, in, in sort of in and out of water, but it makes for a visually magnificent sequence. The whole movie is tremendous, tremendously inventive and visually really, really rich. I just loved it. I thought it was stunning. During that same shootout, you've yeah. got Woody Strode dies, and his death is very odd. 
Uh, I don't know if you remember it. He just ends up squawking like a crow. He's just oh, this guy shoots him, and he keeps coming at him, yeah. making this strange, it's bizarre noise. Bizarre noise, yeah. And it, I think that almost reflects the final battle where you've got the childbirth screams um, as the guys are dying there. I, I think there may be something. There, there may be a reason for it. I just don't know what it bloody is. <laughs> uh, but it's it's weird and it's really disturbing. I find Woody Strode's death is always. A I want to mention the kid who plays the young Kioma. Because as soon as you see him, you know exactly who he is because he's got the same blue eyes. He's got the same sort of headband as Kaoma. He's wonderfully cast and it's really great. And all this flashback stuff, it works really well. It's so well integrated. And we're talking about that moving camera. There's a bit where Kaoma goes back to the ranch where his dad lives and the two of them are sitting out on the porch. And I don't know if you remember, but the camera starts on Kaoma and tracks around to his dad in this long half circle and it's just so beautifully achieved it's um it's where they're sitting there's a uh, empty chair between them yeah. which is obviously or a table their or absent something. mother oh so, interesting yeah. know, the one that should be there between them as they're talking it, it, it's beautifully done that yeah, yeah. it's just it's a small example of, of the lyrical uh tremendously smooth and accomplished photography in this i just yeah i thank you for introducing me to this no, i'm really glad you liked it because i was Disappointed you didn't like Street Law. But, Street uh, Law, folks, if you're listening, Street Law just is not that good. But this is maybe the greatest spaghetti western ever. I mean, I've, I've not seen a lot. But I have seen things like the Dollars Trilogy and uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. And I think this really gives them a run for their money. It seriously so. does. I'm almost tempted now to throw four of the apocalypse at you. No, no, I, I want to see more. Please, any spaghetti westerns you've got, please throw them at me. Well, this is Lucio but, Fulci. Now, he's more famous for his horror movies, at least yeah. in my and this limited is knowledge. bizarre, almost a horror western, you know, so we might please, give that a go. Please bring it on. Um, look, I venerate Ennio Morricone, and nothing can eclipse the greatness of the Morricone scores for those Leone westerns. But in almost every other regard, Keoma seriously gives them a run for their money. I mean, it's, it, it really is an amazing movie. I'm really glad to hear that. I don't know why this movie isn't better known. I, re I really don't know why it's not up there with the, the best. Because I had never heard of it. I mean, I'd heard of all the Django movies and uh, Navajo Joe, uh, the, the various Corbucci movies, obviously Here's, the Leone movies. My theory is that a Western is a really good genre. But for the most part, Hollywood leads in terms of what tastes are at the box office. And because Clint Eastwood is in those three spaghetti westerns, yep. that's why they're better known and that's why they do well at the box office. Kioma does not have a recognisable star for them. Even though Franco Nero was married to you know, uh, Vanessa Redgrave, you know, he has In America, he, has that he was not known. So oh. I think that would stop it doing well at the box office. It's exactly the same you know, sort of vibe. But, the, but there's lots of other obscure Italian, in quotes, obscure Italian spaghetti westerns that are better known than this because i'm just i'm just a movie lover with a casual acquaintance with, with spaghetti westerns uh i mean i knew enough to recognize a lot of the locations in this which were familiar to me from the dollars movies the various landmarks and, and uh, giant rock formations in spain where, where where they filmed it what i really like about this is that usually a western is dust all the way but in this one you get grass as well yeah there's an inter interesting contrast it's... but what we're getting at is even in the world of cult westerns, uh, this isn't that well known. It should be. It's an astonishing film. I keep banging on, but I'm just hoping people will, will check it out. I actually 
want to go out and buy a Blu-ray of this, and this has not happened with any of the other <laughs> movies that we've watched so I far. I think it's out. Uh, you need to buy the Italian one. So if you go to dvd.it... Well, I'm going to go and do that right now, actually. I, Excellent, because you're not having mine. Yeah, I, I do... And the, although the music isn't as good as a more, well, it's not that it's not as good as a Morricone score. It's just it's so different. It's not the same at all. It's a yeah, total, yeah. And I think the problem is, is that the majority of westerns that have come since those Morricone scores have been copying him. Yeah. This is something different. The whole movie is something different. Yeah. This has been a podcast by my friend Matt West and myself, Andrew Cartmel. But very importantly, the music, the fabulous music you heard at the beginning and that you're listening to now is by Joe Kramer. Thank you very much, Joe.